Welcome to In the Isles, your favourite lockdown therapy podcast. In summary, it, it's crass, it's cringe. Not in it for the money yet. I mean, we've got global listeners. That give me validation. Paul Burnham. Carrie Mulligan. Amelia Jones. Gal Gadot. Dune. Stephen Graham. Lovely stuff. You absolute idiot. Epic waste of my time. Bloated disaster. Oh my word. What's wrong with you? We've declared Marvel fatigue. All sequels or reboots. Inspired. Piss funny. Was absolutely awesome. There's some truly shocking twists and turns in this. Hated it. Overrated. I'm sure it'll be ruined. Sheer artistry. Sheer brilliance. Fantastic and brilliant. You need to see it to appreciate it. Welcome to In The Isles, the movie and TV podcast that is as consistent as it is beloved. I'm James. I'm Dan. This week, it's the review of the year episode for 2023, where we talk about our best TV and movies. It's an ill-informed list, though, isn't it? Well, perhaps for you, it's a best of what you've seen. For me, it's more a list of what I've seen. But no, it's the same for me. I don't understand the differentiator. What, what, what are you, you saying? I, I think you've watched a lot of content, but I've not. I, I haven't watched All a lot right, of content. Okay. That, that's what I'm saying. So we're in the same boat. This is a curated list of minimalist offerings that yeah. we've seen throughout yeah. the year. So are we going to address the elephant in the room? The absence? The eight-month absence? Sure. I don't even know if it's that. Yeah, sure. I left the country. I relocated. I emigrated. Traitor. Yeah. One of my top choices is about emigration, actually. Oh, okay. So that happened. Spoiler. You know, life comes at you fast. It's, it takes time to settle down, not watch a lot of content, not a time to sync up and do a podcast, but we're going to get in. At least we're going to at least record it before the year end. Yeah. Maybe not edit and publish before year end. I'll see what I can do. Thank you, appreciate it. So, are we going to say off the bat that this is probably the most uninformed list that is available through any form of media in terms of your best top ten? We we don't know what we're talking about. Yeah, woefully uninformed, I think, right, this okay. is. But, but still honest. And oh, that's, yeah, yeah. That's, what our, that's how we... That's, it's part of our, our brand, isn't it? It's just being honest. Can't ask for any more than from the heart. What's the format for this episode? We're going to do top five TV, top five movies, then honourable mentions that didn't quite make it into our top fives, the biggest disappointments of the year, and biggest surprises. Does that sound okay, Daniel? Yeah, I'll roll with that. That's fine. Three, two, one, zero, zero, and liftoff. Top five TV. Would you like me to begin? Begin. We'll do you my f- number five, then your number five, then my number four, then your number four, then my number three, then your number three. Yeah, get it. Cinco. Number five, <laughs> Picard season three. Oh dear. And I, and I think we had a rule, and I set a rule for myself that was only to pick the first season of something for the top one. But I'm limited this year, so I'm going to say Picard season three, season one and two, not good didn't deliver on what could have been an easy win. But season three was what Star Trek Picard always could have been. Picard gets the band back together 
the original TNG cast, that's The Next Generation. And they go on a fun adventure with some familiar villains, and it makes the most of The Next Generation cast, who are all respected, get to get all their lines and all their traits in. Even Troy is useful in the end. Introduce some new faces who are likeable. Troy? Troy is the psychic. Right, okay. So it was an easy win from the start, but in season three they finally nailed it. Good, 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 good. I have heard that it, it does pick up quite a lot, Picard, because the first few seasons were quite quite rusty, shall we say. If you find yourself bored by Picard, stick it out. No, just skip straight to season three. Don't watch one and two. Well, surely you need the background. No, you don't. That's the interesting thing. They almost entirely ignore them. Right. Do you need the next generation background? Yes. So how Which many is seven, that's seven years, 25 <laughs> episodes per season. Easy watch yep. on a weekend. Picard, season three. Good pick. What's your number five for TV? Ooh, controversial. Won't find it on any list this year. It's The Idol. Oh, did you really? You're coming in hard, okay. Yeah, so this proclaims the the spot of the only programme that I've watched the pilot of twice this year. I don't know what it was about it, but it was a mix of the music, the atmosphere. There was just something about it that I was drawn to. And I'm not going to say that it's like the best TV that I've ever watched, but it does have atmosphere and there is music in this program that you will think about weeks and weeks on so the idol tells the story of a pop star along the lines of britney spears so to speak played by lily rose depp she is befriended by the weekend not playing himself and he influences quite a lot of control over her to the point where he manufactures her new presence in the music industry and it's very fucked up, it's very weird, but at the same time, I think it's worth a watch and was unfairly panned, in my opinion. Cuatro. My number four choice is First Love, which was on Netflix. Oh, but that was released in 2022. Yes, it was, but we watched it after our Year in Review 2022 episode. You're saying like, so I'm putting it in. Anyone knows what that is. First Love is a Japanese drama that was released on Netflix that's based on two Hikaru Utada songs. First Love, from her debut album in 1998, and Hatsukoi, from 2018. And it's about these two characters who bond over the 1998 song when they're teenagers. And then 20 years later, to coincide with the release of the Hatsukoi song, they kind of meet up again. They seem to not know each other, even though they were so close in high school. So what happened? They don't seem to know each other, but they're not happy in their life. They've taken different paths. And when they meet again, there's this painful nostalgia. Remember everything I've just said for the for the top five film bit, because I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to do a callback to to this. We cried uncontrollably at the end of this because it's an incredibly satisfying end I think me and we, you I don't no not this. us me and my wife my oh. wife I think we watched it three times it's a sentimental romantic piece a little bit like The Notebook it's just unashamedly romantic The Notebook you uh, called in as a reference there I'm sold love The Notebook I uh, screeched myself to tears 
Yep, I'll watch that. What's it called again? First Love. Thank you. On Netflix. What's your number four for TV? My number four, sticking with the Brits, it's Happy Valley, season three. I'm not going to bore you with the details of season one and two, because if you haven't seen it, go and watch it. Not even going to give you much detail of season three, because that would be spoilers if you haven't. Sally Wainwright's programme about a Yorkshire detective played by Sarah Lancashire. Absolute amazing TV. Like, Sarah Lancashire is at the pinnacle of her career. I feel like some people were underwhelmed by the finale, but for me it was very fitting for the character. It's so well written, crime drama at its best. My number three for TV is Succession Season 4. Again, breaking my own self-imposed rule of only choosing the first season of something. But the quality was too high for Succession Season 4. It had to go in. And I think two years ago, we did Succession Season 2 or 3 as the number one for both of us. Yeah. I feel like everything that needs to be said has been said about Succession. It will go down in history as one of the best ever. I feel that they nailed the ending that was surprising but made sense. The final scene, the family climax, is hilarious and dramatic at the same time. So well done. I'll just add to that by saying that probably would have appeared on my list, but I did not finish it. And I'm very, very annoyed with myself because it was, well, as you've just articulated, one of the programmes that we uh, spouted on about forever and a day for the best part of two years. Can't wait to finish it off. Good pick. My number three, I feel like I'm ashamed in saying it. I'm not The Last of Us HBO series. I don't think there should be ashamed about that one. No, nope, Very good. popular. Good, good. Very well liked. So for a game that is so beloved by many, I really didn't think this would stick the landing, but it did. And it even injects a bit of originality into it. So a lot of people who will have seen it will know that episode three features a homosexual romance, which is very well portrayed, very, very tear-jerking. It is one of the most powerful moments of TV in 2023. I can't say enough good things about it. I think the only thing that it did wrong was that episode was so strong that the rest kind of didn't live up to that. It made you feel that... Oh, it's going to be emotional high stakes all the way through. You're, you're bought into these characters. It's going to have the same sort of impact. It didn't. Very, very weak ending. However, we've had years of things being adapted and it's never kind of crossed the bar and met the mould. But this did and surpassed it in many ways. Even the main characters, Bella Ramsey. She doesn't look like Ellie. She doesn't sound like her. But she is her now to me. And the same can be said for Pedro Pascal. Pedro Pascal. He's not Joel. He's not. But you forget about that. And it's quite a testament to the programme that it makes you forget the love and affinity that you had for these characters. Those. Making good progress. We're on number two already. The tension's building. Can you feel it? No. My number two <laughs> is The Curse on Paramount+. Plus. Is this an incomplete sampling review? It's not finished, is it? Yeah, episode 7, which is like, if there's 10 episodes, that's over 50% finished if it's up to episode 7 of 10. How many episodes? Oh, of 10. Right, okay. I'll let you have it. I'm assuming it's 10. 
But what is this programme? It's Nathan Fielder's latest work. Nathan Fielder and like someone else who was in Oppenheimer. It doesn't matter who he is, but... <laughs> they created it and they direct and write most of the episodes. It stars them, plus Emma Stone, who also produces... What's it all about? <laughs> it's not set in Canada, so I don't know I need to do that accent. <laughs> a couple, Nathan Fielder and Emma Stone, who have no chemistry. A couple, they make a reality TV... But that's the point, that they have no chemistry. They make a reality TV show about selling passive homes in a relatively low-income area in America. What's a passive home? It's a home that is very green, very eco-friendly. You don't need to heat it or, or cool it. It just has like self-regulating uh, temperature. They basically want to gentrify this area, but they pass it off like it's a really good thing for this small community. What's gentrify mean? Gentrify is where us. you have a low-income area and a load of... I know this. This is for everyone else. Okay. Cool. <laughs> a load of wealthy people come in raise the property prices which prices out the older inhabitants and there's a lot of trendy expensive businesses open that are too expensive but they pass it off like it's a good thing anyway so Nathan Fielder who you'll remember from Nathan For You and The Rehearsal I will like anything that he does I'm a sucker for him I'm a sucker like anything else that he does there are many layers it's a satire on reality TV of course but then you don't get to see them making reality TV too much. The main characters, they're trying to construct these personalities. You even see Nathan Fielder making notes about how he can sound, how he can communicate better with his wife. But he also goes to a corporate comedy class to learn how to be funnier. And Emma Stone tries to befriend a Native American artist to be trendy, but this artist obviously doesn't like her. And Nathan Fielder has a small penis. <laughs> which is shown on screen several times, and there's a running joke <laughs> about that. And it's got quite a bad IMDb rating, and I think it's because it's so opaque that it is a comedy, and I would I was watching it laughing, but you have to be tuned into that kind of cringe comedy, like The Office that we've been watching our whole lives, and you have to pay attention quite closely to little looks and facial twitches, especially from Emma Stone. Very much looking forward to that. You say you might know Nathan Fielder. I feel like 78, nay, 90% of the British public don't know who the fuck he is. Yep. At all. Definitely. And if you don't, you've wasted your lives. Check him out. He got very good grades at business school. (laughs) What's your number two for TV? My number two, which I don't have words to articulate, is Silo. On Apple TV. I heard a lot of buzz around this. I had no expectations. I just heard, do you know what? It's pretty good. And I thought, I'll watch it. Force the missus. I heard dystopian sci-fi. And I thought, do you know what? That's exactly what the missus doesn't want. However, she watched it all the way through. I didn't hear a moan or a groan or a turn it off, please which I'll come on to this later on, but that has been a constant theme throughout the year. She really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed this. It's about a bunch of people forced into a silo of sorts, a condensed, socialised, not experiment of such. We don't know what the reasons are, 
but people forced to live in a high-rise of society where they farm their own food. It is a bit of a murder mystery, and a lot of it revolves around if you disobey the society or the, the, the structures that they put in place, you will be put outside. Cancel culture allegory, is it? It might be. Who knows? I mean, this was written years ago before that even came around because it's based on a novel, but that might very well be true. There's a lot to like about this. I don't really want to go into the depths of it because, one, I can't explain it. Two, it would be spoiling it. But Rebecca Ferguson is the lead in this, but you would not gauge that from the first two episodes. She is very good. There's a lot of high-pressure situations that she's put into which leads to some of the best episodes of the season and you still want in for more at the end of the second season if you're on the fence and you think i'm not a sci-fi person this to me rests in the middle of acceptable sci-fi where it's not too far gone where it will lose your interest it's very much grounded to an extent it's human interaction and how people react to adversity pressure Shit. <laughs> it's good. It's good TV. I'm sorry I'm not uh, explaining it well, but Silo, very, very good TV. Very good, very good. Stop banging the table. You're not Mark Kamod. <laughs> oh, no. We're so flooded with content. Overwhelmed, you might say. And we finally reached the, the number one pick for our TV. What was the best television series that we've each seen this year? For me, Beef. Number one? Yeah. Number one? Christ. I binged watched Beef on Netflix in two days. But what is it about? It's about an escalating feud between Stephen Yen and a woman. And it begins <laughs> with a, a road rage incident. A, a simple road rage, rage incident. And it escalates to some a, a slightly implausible level, but by that time it's become a farce, really, by the end. So it's fine. But the ending uh, becomes more profound and surreal for the whole episode. And the writing is consistently funny. It's primarily a comedy. All the comedic performances are good from, from everyone. Even Stephen Yen, who I don't really associate with comedy. Ali Wong, who's the co-lead with him, who's done stand-up that I haven't watched, but she's very, very funny in it that as you, well. You've disliked. I've disliked all her comedy. <laughs> <laughs> disliked all her stand-up, just to flush it out of the algorithm. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, there's quite a lot going on in this programme, though. Because there's a, a contrast between like Stephen Yen's like working class handyman environment. Like, he lives in a hotel, and his his cousin's like fresh out of prison, and Ali Wong's like, big house and rich friends, and nice cars, and that that adds a lot of entertainment. That contrast, like maybe it's trying to say something about about class or something. I don't know. It was good enough for me to binge watch it in one and a half days, and none of this was out of guilt for disliking all of Ali Wong's comedy. Beef. Beef. Season one. Which is an A24 production. Remember that for later as well. Daniel, what's the best TV programme that you watched this year? Not that confident with this, but I'll go with it anyway. Keep your... Stop banging your fucking elbow on the table. What? Did I? You just went... It's The Bear. Season two. I think I waxed lyrical about season one when it came out. The Bear season two. Did not disappoint. A lot of build-up, a lot of hype to this. 
especially when it came to the Christmas, I'm doing inverted commas, don't know why, because it is Christmas episode, where there's a, a very long, arduous, dramatic, sweat-inducing episode of, of somebody or, or a family getting ready for Christmas, which is by far one of the standout episodes of this season, but this just felt like it built upon what season one did. This is what this show wants to be. I am all for it. I'm looking forward to season two, and it really, really progresses its characters uh, quite a lot, I would say. So, say for example, Cousin... I don't even know his name. I've not seen it, so I can't... Okay. So, the cousin, Takami, who is the main character, who, if you don't remember, he is a very acclaimed chef. He's called back to his family business, which is essentially like a deli shop. And he's like, I'm going to make this fine dining for people. And says that he wants, you know, his ambition is to open a restaurant in his brother's name and have it very highly acclaimed. It's about building up the business, structuring the restaurant, getting everything sorted. It is like a lead up to opening night of this restaurant and it could not be better paced. It's the finest example of TV that I can find this year. So let's review my top five in descending or ascending order. Star Trek Picard season three. First to love the Japanese romantic drama. Succession season four. The Curse with Nathan Fielder and Beef. Mine, as is James's, based on an incomplete sampling. Five, The Idol. Four, Happy Valley. Three, The Last of Us. Two, Silo. And number one, Hotspot, The Bear. Oh, I've I've had I've finished half a glass of wine, so it could all start going off the rails in a minute. Honourable mentions for TV. Things that didn't quite make it into your top five, but you feel deserve a mention. Would you like to go first? Go on, then. The Fall of the House of Usher. Mike Flanagan, back again on Netflix. Follows the literature of Edgar Allan Poe. Each episode is centred around one of his stories, and a death ensues, and each death is very, very graphic... It doesn't necessarily one-up itself from episode to episode. I I feel like it reached its pinnacle in episode two. But it's just campy, ridiculous fun. And I think it arrived in time for Halloween, which feels like the best time it could have arrived. Does that have Carla Gugino in it? It does. I don't think it's said that way, but let's go with that. Um, (laughs) She is the enemy in this. She is the villain, and she is... Like a chameleon in every episode. Uh, her performance alone is worth watching it for. Very, very addictive, entertaining TV. The Fall of the House of Usher is my number one honourable mention. I've only got one honourable mention, so why don't you just finish yourself off and then <laughs> I'll just do my one. Odd choice of words. Wrestlers, Netflix. I don't know why I watch this. This is not me TV. But one night, on a random weekend, I thought, oh, let's give it a go. It's got a high IMDb rating. And it follows Al Snow, who is... A hardcore wrestler from the Attitude Era. But, but he, he also had, had, a a human doll, head. had a doll's head on a stick. Yeah. 
So he has basically took it upon himself to degrade himself to the lower levels of wrestling and make it his mission to compete with the likes of WWE. And you can really feel the influence of how, like the storylines and the drama that's put into when he was in the world of WWE. He's putting that into his shows and he painstakingly goes through like, oh, what is the drama? What is the storyline we're trying to tell? But alongside that, which is in- interesting already, you've got these like misfits of society who are trying to be wrestlers. And it is just so interesting to see how these people kind of go along with what he's trying to do. I've no interest in wrestling whatsoever, but I found this very, very insightful. Netflix hasn't served that up to me, so the algorithms failed me there. Mm. Doesn't know me as well as it thinks. I mean, you you do get weird stuff in there, which makes you question, like why they're doing this. Like, the, there's a woman who is like the star of the show, and she's just smoking meth slash cannabis before she goes on stage. But still, she brings her air game. Just those two. Last one. Sorry, another program I didn't finish. Dead Ringers on Amazon Prime. Film from the 80s, I want to say it's 1988, with Jeremy Irons, concentrates on a doctor who, with his twin, I think he's a gynaecologist, but there's a lot of like gender mashup here in terms of the adaptation in 2023. They abuse the patients, they misuse them, it all goes to pot. This one is about people trying to get other couples pregnant and the lengths to which they will go to do that. Two sisters, twins, who are very, very much at heads. They have very different conflicting personalities. Again, I didn't finish it, but I found the vibe, the aura, the atmosphere very, very intriguing. It's not your typical drama. There's something a bit left field about this one. Okay. So my honourable mention for TV is Sex Education that concluded with its fourth season this year on Netflix. And I hadn't watched the previous ones, so we watched all four years' worth in the space of a few weeks. We were hooked. It's about a boy who who is the son of a sex therapist, played by Gillian Anderson in an amazing performance, and he opens a sex therapy clinic at college, and he talks about various things with them and it explores very sensitively and very entertainingly issues of of sex and gender and sexuality and relationships and there's some cracking stories there's lots and lots of characters and you have some really interesting story arcs like someone who starts off as a bully but becomes more sensitive the fourth season has been panned by fans long-term fans of the series there is a dip in quality. They introduce new topics in a ham-fisted way. It's less deep in how they explore. The ideas, half the characters disappear without explanation to be replaced by new characters only in the final season. But because we were binge-watching it, that didn't have as much of an impact. So Sex Education is a great four-year series on Netflix that reached a nice conclusion, unlike many other Netflix shows that are cancelled halfway through. Altered Carbon will never be forgiven. 
Shall we move on to top movies? Three, two, one, zero, zero, and liftoff. Let's stick to the format. Change as little as possible. Fünf. My number five movie is Marcel the Shell with shoes on. You watched it. We were going to review this in February and never did. We just cut the podcast short. We just left it. That was we were going to do a last one that would explain the break, but we never did. And this was it was going to be Marcel the Shell with shoes on. And you're thinking, oh no. I'm looking at Rotten Tomatoes. 2021, what are you on about? 2023 release date in the UK. So it's eligible. But what is it about? This is a, another A24 production. It's about a shell, a talking shell, a one inch tall shell, who ekes out a colourful existence with his grandmother, Connie, and their pet. And it's revealed that she was once, sorry, he was once a part of a sprawling community of shells, but they live alone. So there's this tragic loneliness to these shells. And it's done as a documentary. So a documentary is being made about this shell. So it's presented as highly realistic. And Marcel becomes very popular online. And it's it's a heartwarming and hilarious story. Jenny Slate plays Marcel. Just thought I'd say that because I've got the page open, so I'll just name her. <laughs> Never heard of her. Yeah. The ending is brilliant. I went back and watched just the ending three more times just to relive that amazing moment at the end. And I think what you might see through my top five is the endings become a bit of a theme. All these films, I suppose all strong films, have good endings that you can't talk about them without saying the ending hits so hard for all my choices today. Well, that's set me up well and good for my number five because uh, this probably has one of the most shit-the-bed endings in recent memory. My number five is Leave the World Behind. It's a, again, post-apocalyptic what-if-everything-went-to-shit film and it is littered with some of the most imaginative imagery of like things gone wrong or things that just don't make sense and for me it was one of those where I sat down with the missus and I said tonight I want to watch Leave the World Behind because I can't recall a film in the last two years where it felt like event television like I didn't know I didn't see the trailer I didn't know what the concept of this was but it just it just felt like there was more ambition to it than things that I've seen before. And I really was not disappointed by 95% of this film. Like it felt like I have seen things in this that I have I have not seen before. Whether it be Teslas piling upon one another, crashing into one another. Where's that come from? I'm not gonna tell you. Windows cracking, flamingos appearing from nowhere. Dear, everywhere. There's just so much that is obscure and weird about this film that I loved, and not to mention the camera work that is just very explorative. Like, if you've seen... I've never watched Mr. Robot, but Sam Esmail did a Homecoming with Julia Roberts. If you haven't watched that, I implore you, it is well worth your time. Don't watch season two. I fell off that. It might be worth it, but... 
he's got a very keen eye for what looks good on film. And some of it is nauseating, like the camera will pan to the point where it's like doing like a roundhouse, like, oh, I'm working my way down throughout the stairs, what's going on? It is weird, but it just feels different. And this whole film, for me, felt like that. It was like I'm watching something that I don't ordinarily watch. Granted, it did not meet the sum of its parts. Get to the ending, it was very, very abrupt, and there's been a lot of speculation and debate around what was the point of this film. But to me, even on reflection, because it, there was a lot of internal debate for myself as to whether I put this into my top five, I feel like this film has a message. And it's not even subtle in a lot of it, but when it comes to the ending, which is very much debated, I feel like there's a lot to read into that, and that's more than I can say for a lot of films this year. So for me, Leave the World Behind, 95 to 8% of an awesome film and an ending that is open to interpretation, which actually could reap more rewards, it's worth your time. So that's why it's my number five. Very good. Is that based on a book? It is based on a book. I wonder if the book ends the same way. It's similar, but a bit different, apparently. But I couldn't tell you the ins and outs of it. Okay. Fear. My number four choice of top five films of the year. Godzilla Minus One. That we watched last week. Indeed. In very comfortable reclining chairs in View Bolton. It's the blockbuster of the year, so there's going to be no other blockbusters on this list. Spoiler. Well, there's one film that did come very close to making a billion, but you know what I mean by blockbuster, don't you? This is the only straightforward, entertaining film on the list, and it's because it's just that. It's straightforward and entertaining. It's almost predictable in what happens, but that's not a bad thing. It's predictable in a comfortable and logical way an entertaining way and I enjoyed noticing there were two little things that I spotted that I thought I wonder if those are very small details that will pay off later in a satisfying way they did Uh, there are four very good action scenes which is a nice number for a film of about two hours that nicely split apart and in between those action scenes you have likeable characters building up their motivations and their struggles it's that easy Believable special effects that are shortlisted for the Oscars. $15 million budget, 100 mil worldwide. So great special effects. And my stupid monkey brain can understand a cargo ship being thrown across a harbour or a train being picked up and thrown around or one building collapsing. Those are plausible things that I can process happening so there's a real level threat happening going on this is a blockbuster where there are serious characters acting like normal people and having a laugh but they take the events seriously so Godzilla minus one my blockbuster of the year in my number four slot good pick we'll discuss it a lot longer because we watched it recently I said to you after the film the acting within it is quite melodramatic and I asked you, like, is this stereotypical of Japanese cinema? Talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an expert, but it, it, it seems to me that there's a school of Japanese acting where the actors will play the archetypes 
very clearly so that the audience will understand immediately, oh, he's doing that character, and they'll play the emotions in what you might call a melodramatic way. Well, that's not to say that being melodramatic is a bad thing. Melodrama is just one style of performance that's now outdated and was replaced by like method acting of Marlon Brando and James Dean. But in, it seems to me that in the Japanese school of acting, in some films, there's, it's still in the style of melodrama. So mm. it's done intentionally. It's not bad acting. That's just it's a, the style that they use. And it, it, it didn't, to be transparent, like it didn't distract from it. Like I said to you... When we watched it, like there's there's been many a Godzilla iteration in the last few years, and all the American films are shot to shit with this. Like it, they pale by comparison. Like even with the first introduction of Godzilla, like is it? It's intimidating. It is terrifying, and the sound design, which is why I think it's worth seeing this in a cinema. You feel it, and it's like, oh my god! Like I never felt any ounce of that in any of those American films like that there is a bit of gravitas to this that you don't feel in those films hence why it's in my honourable mentions even given like the 15 million pound budget like it's astounding what they achieved with that like utterly astounding and I I don't want to take that away from it because I will remember that film I have no memory of I can't even remember what they're called Godzilla versus Kong. Yeah, yeah. Godzilla fucking Rise of the Moon soldiers, whatever it is, like this has something to it. It has heart and it has soul. My understanding is that the low budget can be attributed to low pay. Ruin it now. And poor (laughs) working conditions in the Japanese movie industry. Godzilla, minus one, my number four. What's your number four film of the year? My number four cause could easily be subduted to uh, my biggest surprise was fucking subduted. I'm pissed. <laughs> my number four. You mean relegated? Well, it's not relegated. It could fit into either category. My number four could easily fall into my biggest surprise category which is The Deepest Breath, which randomly, on a Saturday morning, many moons ago, about two months, I put this on, expected nothing, and I was absolutely bowled off by it. So if you don't know what it is, again, I'm not not being like purposely obscure, but it's about free diving into the deepest depths of the ocean. And these people do this without any apparatus, just diving in. I'm gonna basically scale the best part, and I I might be butchering this, but from memory, like a high scale structure of the Eiffel Tower, all the way down and all the way back up again, without any breathing machinery or anything, straight down, straight up, one breath. And it is, did that make sense? Underwater. Underwater. Right. So the opening bit of this, and again, like it's been a while since I've seen this, but the opening bit is people attempting this, coming back up and looking like they are dead. Like it is terrifying. Like you have people just flailing around, they're coming back to the surface after doing this amazing feat and just looking like death. And their eyes are rolling back in the head and people are like, what's going on? That's the opening bit of this film. And you're like, what? 
what is this? This this is horrendous. I can't watch this. The rest of the film is the same thing, and it is people who are basically putting their lives at risk just for the accolade of I've dived the deepest, held my breath for the longest. And it is amazing what people will do for that sort of fame. Aside from the sports side of it, this is quite an in-depth love story of two people meeting. And again, I'm not being purposely obscure, but falling in love over a combined interest of this sport. I just was not expecting myself to be swept away with this. <laughs> swept. Water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As much as I was. Three days after, I was like, oh my God, I watched this film at the weekend. It felt really informative. I felt like I transcended something. Like it, It's like life affirming in a way. On the flip side of things, it's also like, why do you put yourself in such peril? It doesn't make sense to me as a person. I'm not going to say anymore. The only thing that I will say is it's received a bit of criticism for the fact that it probably abuses the narrative a bit in terms of I'm not going to present to you what actually happened. I'm going to leave you in suspense and I'm going to hold it out for dramatic purposes at the end. But that's not fair on it. Like it's very well represents like what this lifestyle meant to people, how they came to love each other. There's a lot to like about this. I'm I'm not I'm not gonna basically take the downsides and and knock it down a peg. I really really liked this. The deepest breath what on can, Netflix. What kind of durations are we talking about for these breaths? We're talking like I'm, I'm don't like, like two hours. No, <laughs> we're talking like five six minutes. I right, think. Okay. My number three is Past Lives, the Korean drama. Well, it's it's Korean, but it's set in in New York as well, and, and there's a lot of English language in it, so I don't think I'd really call it Korean. What is this? It's from a first-time director, actually. First-time writer-director, Celine Song. Is came. it A24? It's A24. The production company is Seiji E-N-M Company, Killer Films, 2AM, and A24. And distributes A24. So this is my third thing that's related to A24. I'll say what this is about in this case because it's it's less well known. So Nora and Hei Sung, two deeply connected childhood friends, are rest apart. Rest is a rest apart. What yeah. what does that mean? It means to forcibly pull something from a person's grasp. After Nora's family emigrates from South Korea to America. And two decades later, they're reunited for one fateful week as they talk about... I'm not going to read the whole thing. These these people, they, they, they're childhood sweethearts for each other. And then they're separated from each other. And then almost 20 years later, they meet each other again. And you're thinking, what's happened? Why didn't they get... What, why aren't they together? Or what's, what's happened? That's the call back to first love. Because it's very similar. It's a similar thing. Uh, but also completely different because it's not an amnesia story. So, the whole what hangs over the whole film is this aching nostalgia, and that's the what Greta Lee's performance really does really well. There's a pain to this whole thing. There's this sense of a past life, past lives, the name of the film, past life being being lost, and and it's painful to think about the past life when you think you've moved on and there's a pivotal scene where the two main characters they sit down and this it's in Korean and it's subtitled the line that she says when they're talking about 
how they ended up reconnecting. Uh, Nora asks, why would you do that? So he's explaining like how he reached out and reconnected, and she says, why would you do that? It's like he's done something bad by forcing her to dredge up the past and do all this. It's so it's just such a complicated relationship. You can really see in every scene, every facial expression, just how complicated it is for them to be meeting each other. Not just romantically, there's cultural implications as well, which I only know from reading about what the director said about the film. It's not just about her leaving her past childhood sweetheart behind, it's like leaving her Korean identity behind. And on the theme of endings, has a very strong ending that really perfectly encapsulates all the all the issues of the film. It's the kind of ending that makes you want to look up what does that ending mean <laughs> and then read about it, then pretend that you know what the film was about all along when you talk about it on your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just linger on that. I watched this, not my sort of thing, and even though I'm not as hot on it as you, like I really appreciated the fact that I watched something outside my wheelhouse, which I, I thought was very nuanced. It had a lot of feeling to it, had a lot of emotion. There's depth, there is depth there, and I feel like I've reached the edge of how profound I was going to be with what I've just said. I've, I've not, because there was more to it, but I've forgotten it now, because I've had a drink. But whatever, it's very, very good. And it's on a lot of top ten lists this year, and for very good reason. I think if you watch this, you will find something in it that is true to you, and that means something. We're getting into the... No, certainly this time. I'm wasted. My number three is a film that you poo-pooed. I don't care if that's volume heavy. It's Anatomy of a Fall. So, oh, he's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, you wait for me to react. No, it's fine. Okay. So, Anatomy of a Fall. I heard this was good. I watched it. I don't want to say I was blown away. I was like, well, well bear in mind... What, what is my catnip? It's murder mystery, right? This is a murder mystery. And skip ahead 10 seconds if you don't want spoilers. Now, here's your cue. You're not going to get any answers. This is a very open-ended murder mystery. Was it? Yeah. Okay. Thriller. <laughs> See, this is what I mean. Don't get me started. So, the whole crux of this is a family, husband and wife, and a son. Son who is blind. Husband ends up dead. How did he come to be so? Well, let the rest of the film explain that to you. And let it say to you, you tell me what you think the ending of this film is, or who was responsible. It doesn't offer you any answers, but at the same time, there's so much layers to this in terms of you have a German wife I want to say he's a French husband yeah yeah let's say that the language barriers are a theme in the film and it's all about someone uprooting their life to be with someone else and relocate to another country 
at the same time, a lot of that stigmatizes their relationship and the fact that people have made those sacrifices to be with someone. And it blows up into an argument that is revealed in court, which I'm not going to go into the details of. But it's so finely articulated in terms of the struggle from somebody who goes from one country to another and tries to readapt. And at the same time, that is not the focus of the film. It's very much, did this couple come to blows and did one of them off the other? Who knows? We don't know. But the journey which we go through, which is not just the wife who is in the dock in court, but a child who is, you know, their bear witness to all the ugliness of their parents' relationship. It's along the lines of a film that I love in terms of murder mystery, but with an extra layer of, ooh, I've never seen this before, which added to the intrigue. Finally acted throughout the whole piece, the main actress, I don't know what her name is, she's immense. She speaks English throughout the whole thing. It's not a native language, but she is unbelievable. I just came away from this film feeling like this is one of the most standout performances of the year in terms of the female actress, of which I don't know. Sandra Hula. Thank you. But the U has the little dot, two dots on top. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I wish it was all for her, like that there is a argument scene between husband and wife, which I will reveal no more, but it was very raw. Honestly, the hype that surrounded this film, I thought you can't live up to it. But for me, even though it had an ending, which was like, mm, it's neither here nor there, I could read it either way, I didn't care. Like, it was just one of the best things that I've watched this year. Zwei. Number two, we're getting into the high, high level ground stuff now. So my number two film, a film that we actually did review on the podcast, Tar, which confirms that Kate Blanchett is the best actor alive. Ineligible. Why? 2022, mate. No, it's not. (laughs) No, it was, but it was it was released in the UK in 2020. Right. Yes. So it's fine. It's fine. And you had confirmed that already. Right. (laughs) Written and directed by Todd Field, who doesn't get out of bed to bother to do films very much because his last one. Uh, was Little Children in 2006. So he's finally bothered to do another something else. So good for him. What is it all about? It's about this legendary, fictional conductor and composer. Maybe just conductor. But what what it does is it perfectly captures the, the madness of, of genius, like the paranoia and the struggle that she goes through because she's so brilliant. And it's really about the, the downfall that she goes through. It's been described as a cancel culture film by some outlets, which I suppose it is in a way, but it's not like a Ricky Gervais, oh, cancel culture's bad, it's anti-woke. It's not like that. It's much more complex. And I recall from our episode at the time, which you can, which you can go back and listen to, that we did have quite a complicated discussion about the intent of, of the film and what the theme was. I did see a summary in The Guardian that said it's about a narcissistic abuser, very clearly saying this is about her being evil, 
But I don't think we saw it that way. I think we saw it maybe as being at what? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> what I... <laughs> I remember seeing it as being a creative genius comes at a cost. Maybe she needs to sleep with a few violinists if we want some great music. In any case, lovely film. Lovely. Lovely. Lovely? lovely. Really? <laughs> lovely? Excellent film. Memorable, oh. complicated. Tar, number two. Yeah. Switch your mind off at the door. Just lovely. Viewing entertainment. Just a bit of a warm hug Simple. of a film, isn't yeah. it? Very good. Good pick. Thank you. What's your number two film of the year? Uh, really struggled with this, but uh going to call it out, whatever. Taylor Swift, Era's Tour. Does it qualify as a film, James? Yes, it does. Good. I'll take it. So, random night, just before Christmas, I said... We both like Taylor Swift. Let's put it on. This was the most unabashed, great three hours. Three hours that we had all year. I can't really say anything that is negative about this. It's a testament to how she's reinvented herself, Taylor Swift, throughout the years. It's a spectacle beyond belief. Just watch it. Just watch it. I don't, I don't know what else to say. It's worth your time. If you don't like Taylor Swift, probably avoid it. Um, I said to you, like, she annoyed me for the first 20 minutes. I thought, who do you think you are? Come on. You're not that important, Taylor. But as the, the show wore on, like, it's just... You can't deny... You cannot deny. The Taylor Swift live tour has felt like a global cultural event that's been written about quite a lot. So I think it's fitting that she appears in our podcast as well, which is also a culturally significant uh, thing-ish. Yeah. Eins. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah, yeah. Vape. <laughs> just vape a little bit. Yeah, okay, right. Number one film. The number one film of the Ooh. year. For me. Oh, I wonder what it could possibly be. I did hint at it. It almost made one billion dollars at the box office. Oppenheimer. In my opinion, Nolan's best film, overtaking Inception. I think it's it's peak Nolan. It has everything that you've seen in his other films. Even going all the way back to Memento, where you have black and white and colour, subjective and objective, the non-linear story which is extremely complicated not not extremely complicated however as you're watching it you can't really explain what's happening at any given moment however and this is why it's good you always understand the feeling of what's happening for example there's a sequence about a potential russian mole and about how oppenheimer maybe knew who this person was and who was giving information and he was trying to explain who it was without really saying who it was. And it's told in three from three different perspectives. And at the time, I didn't really understand who they're talking about, what's happening. But I could grasp the stakes 
and the intentions of all the characters. Emo there was an emotional truth that made sense to it. And the whole idea that's central to it, which is telling the story subjectively, completely, from Oppenheimer's perspectives, with the intense close-ups where you can see him thinking, oh, I'm not sure about this, you know, this nuclear bomb. You know what, I'm not sure. That story was, was told very well. It's a complicated story, but it's very focused on Oppenheimer and his struggle with it. It is focused on Oppenheimer, but it's a ridiculously stacked cast. So in the first hour, it throws out every actor that you've ever seen in any film. And then suddenly, Rami Malek appears when you think there's no one else to come. They just keep throwing these actors at you. Amazing cast. And, of course, the soundtrack. I've been listening to it on the reg. That means regularly. <laughs> because that's also very good. Every element comes together perfectly. There was no doubt for me this was number one. Oppenheimer. Don't know what to say to that, other than I'm ashamed that I have not watched it. Absolutely ashamed. That's it. Right? Even that you've got that massive TV behind us, you've yeah. still not watched it. Well, no, couldn't even consider it. It's even in, is it in IMAX aspect ratio? How long is it? Two and a half hours? 240 maybe? How is it? It's not over three hours. Oh, right. Can't even... Don't even have that. Excuse. Fair enough. It flies by because the editing is all over the place. You've just got no idea what's going on and then it finishes. And to cap off the the, the idea of, of endings has a already iconic ending line, ending shot. So, ask you a question because... I've avoided every trailer, everything to do with Oppenheimer. Is it, like, is that spectacle there you associate Christopher Nolan with bombastic, unrivaled visual flair? Like, is this here? Yes, it right. is. It is. Not just with the the bomb scene where the dude set off a real bomb not a real atomic what bomb. they set off a massive massive bomb but also basically anything in Las, Al Las Los Alamos that's filmed in IMAX and you get to see the huge sweeping landscape of, of New Mexico so that's done in a very epic way what is your number... I have no idea what you're going to say. What's your number one film? My number one recency bias is Saltburn. That's it. Yep. Yep. I'm nodding. Yep. Yep. Not going to say anything else. Okay. No, I will. So, part class satire, part psychological thriller... This is a genre mashup. Nothing this year has been this full on in terms of I'm gonna bombard you with genres. I'm gonna do it. Boom. This film did it for me and it speaks my language. Like it's dark, it is funny. It has to be seen to be believed. That's probably blowing it out of all proportion because it's been very much a Marmite film 
And I acknowledge that. Like, most people will watch this and not appreciate it. And let's at least say that, you know, there's been a lot of, oh, this is the weird, unintentional film or Christmas film of this year for families. It's not a family film. There's weird stuff that happens in this that you would not invite your most hated enemy to watch. You just wouldn't. But still, there's enough there that's different that it's worth a watch. I'm going to leave it there. Saltburn. I suspect this is a less well-known film. Could you briefly tell us what it is? What? Despite it, apart from it being written and directed by Emerald Fennell, who also did Promising Young Woman, what's what's it about? So Barry Keoghan. Barry I've, I've got no idea. I've got no Barry idea. It's probably something like Barry Keoghan. It's probably pronounced Fen. He is invited to the illustri- illustrious family of I don't even know the fucking surnames. Basically, an estate. Oh, come. Welcome to my family. Welcome to the estate. Enjoy yourself. All goes pear-shaped from there. I don't, I don't know what else to say. And I don't feel like I should. This is a film that is like... Just take yourself along for the ride. See what happens. Yep. <laughs> not enough Carrie not enough Carrie Mulligan. I feel like you've just gone... You've not explained it any better... <laughs> Than what you've just said, but that's fine. Yeah. No, that's well. What? What? Acknowledging? Yeah. He's I've not. He got. He, he's at Oxford University. This lad. This this lad who's less wealthy is at Oxford University, and he's overwhelmed. I mean, I don't, I don't want by to the tell. wealthy people yeah. around him, and he gets invited to this house of house of wealthy people. That's it. Yeah. That's all you need to know. Yeah. It's, it's, it, I think it's been it's been called the, the, possibly the most divisive film of the year, hasn't it? And I think that's fine. Yeah. Like a lot of people will watch this and go, "No, thank you. This is not for me." But I really enjoyed this. Yeah, there are some there are some very um, there are some noteworthy scenes that might make people recoil. There are there are. I will yeah. not point them out, but. Richard E. Grant, Rosamund Pike, great. So let's list what our top five films were. So I can go back to this point in the recording so I can make the podcast, the, the Instagram image very yeah. easily. So I, my number five, number top fives. I've still had too much wine. <laughs> That's what it's about. My number five, my top five films of the year. Descending order, ascending order. Marcel the shell with shoes on. Godzilla minus one. Past lives. Tar Oppenheimer. What were your top five films? Five. Leave the world behind. Four. The deepest breath. Three. Anatomy of a fall. Two. Taylor Swift. Erasor. One. Saltburn. Lovely. I don't think we have any crossover in our TV or film. Lists. No, we don't. That's really good, isn't it? A very diverse list of films. I will have to make some difficult choices for the Instagram collage, though. I can't put 20 images on. So, honourable mentions for film. 
I've got two. I have got Mission Impossible 7. Talk to me about that. Because I watched it and I didn't hate it. But I was like, you're not grabbing me. I, ne- just... I needed a YouTube video to explain to me what was missing. It was that apparently they hadn't finished the script as they were filming. Right. So they were realising what the story should be or realising, oh, we need an explanation of what the AI is as they were filming it. They knew what the set pieces were and then they filled in some of the gaps as they were filming. So that's why some of it feels maybe a little bit incoherent or unrelated, some of the Mm. action scenes to what is going on. They knew they wanted to have Tom Cruise bike off a mountain and parachute onto a train, but why? That wasn't clear. Apparently, they did that on Mission Impossible Fallout as well, but they pulled off a miracle and had it be more cohesive. None of that is to say that Mission Impossible 7 is bad. Dead Reckoning Part 1. It's in my honourable mentions. I did watch it twice at the cinema. I, I was enthralled throughout the whole film. Tom Cruise still has it. That cast they've pulled together is still great. It was a great film. I'd recommend it heavily. It's still, for me, the best action series that's ever made. Not as good as Fallout. Not true to say it's getting better and better, but still an excellent film. One of the best, well, maybe one of the only blockbuster action films, along with Godzilla, that was actually good this year, Mission Impossible 7. My other honourable mention is The Royal Hotel. That I used, you did a, a, a frown there because you've not heard of it. This is a film no. that stars Jessica Hennick. So anything Jessica Hennick is an immediate watch for me, who for some reason is much less famous than she should be. She's had a minor role in Star Wars, a lead role in The Matrix. She was in two of the biggest films on Netflix, Glass Onion, Grey Man. She was in Iron Fist and Game of Thrones. Can't break a million followers on Instagram. The Royal Hotel is an Australian film directed by Kitty Green. It stars Julia Garner from Ozark, one of your favourites. Oh, yes. I know what he's talking about. Uh, it's inspired by a documentary, apparently, according to, according to Wikipedia. Two travellers move in, get a job at a hotel. And, oh, it's not a very nice hotel. It's full of men, isn't it? Being all, being all nasty to them. And it's, it's, it's very unpleasant to watch uh, at times and they don't have a very good time working at this hotel and that's basically what it's about but it does a lot with the hotel setting Julia Garner and Jessica Hennick turning very good performances very tense psychological thriller that held my attention throughout the Royal Hotel where can we watch it James? just buy or rent it through your preferred you know, online film thing like Amazon Prime or Apple Movies just get it like that it's not on any streaming services I feel like you've watched it illegally what are your honourable mentions? Uh, right I'm going to start off with this because it's more than a year since I've watched it and it still lingers on Jurassic Punk Heard of this? No, I've not. Right. So, is it about is it about dinosaurs who are anti-establishment? Ish. 
I will not be remembering this right, but the guy, I don't even know his name. That is so insulting. But whatever. The guy who pioneered the CGI effects of the Tyrannosaurus Rex in Jurassic Park. This is his story. A lot of the studio, when it came to Jurassic Park, were all about animatronics. And they were like, let's do this real time, blah, blah, blah. And this guy, of which I don't know his name, which is really insulting, you know was like, Jurassic no, Park. you know what, we're going to do this into it through CGI. So in all based on the fact that some guy really does. Oh, you know about Right, that sounds very good. Good film. Yep. Do one sentence for each. Yeah. Okay. Now. Yep. <laughs> Blackberry. Everyone remembers. I'm, I'm too pissed for this. Everyone remembers Blackberry. That was one sentence. Right. Do the, <laughs> do the next one. <laughs> um, great film. Didn't deserve it. Uh, Soft and Quiet. Weird film. One take. Fundamentalist weird shit. Watch it if you haven't. What do you mean? Sick. What do you mean fundamentalist? Like ideologically? Yeah. Okay. Um, you, you told me one sentence. <laughs> uh, so, uh, sick of myself. Danish film from memory. Woman who decides to say, "I'm sick of my jealous." Not jealous, boyfriend, who's reclaiming his world in art. I'm gonna get just piss. <laughs> Good film. Yep. <laughs> Evil Dead Rise. Really oh yeah, that it. is good. That is really good. Yeah. Yeah. Missing, which is a sequel to The Missing, which has one of the most heart wrenching. Starts ever. Wonka was very good. Godzilla minus one. Past Lives. Great film. Great film. Can't deny it. Barbie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sick of you saying it wasn't worth the chuff. Because it was. Who said it wasn't worth it? Everyone. There you go. There's my honourable mentions. Good. Good selection. Good selection. Talk to me. That was my <laughs> Okay. So we've covered honourable mentions. Another 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 fun section we've got is biggest surprise. <laughs> what were the biggest surprises for us this year? Well for me the biggest surprise was in film was Barbie because I knew that it was one of the the highest grossing film of the year. You didn't even like it. But I did like it. What surprise I watched it on the plane. Because I'm such a traveller. What surprised me about it was it did hit quite deep in the end when Barbie has that final speech with the spoilers, with the creator of Barbie. It hit quite deep and she talks about how she, she doesn't want to be the thing that someone else has made. She wants to be the, the person who does the creating. Hmm. I've butchered that. But she says something that, that hit quite deep and I thought, oh, I relate to Barbie. I am Barbie. And that was, a, that was a surprise for me. The TV surprise was Squid Game, the challenge, which was the reality TV real-life version of the massive smash hit Squid Game. 
that I told you to watch. Did you tell me to watch The Challenge? Yeah. Okay. I was not expecting much from this, but it was had a staggered release. And when it got to the end, I could not wait <laughs> for the final episode to come out. It did end anticlimactically, but what was interesting about it was... It's people's behaviour is what made it interesting. Not the actual contest, but yeah. the way that you had people trying to make alliances and strategize. Especially the, the men were like, let's stick together. And they tried to make this group of strong men, but none of the games were strength-based. So that all fell apart. And the selfishness and the, the betrayal... And the worshipping of every time money dropped into the big ball, everyone looked up and just applauded the money. They just clapped at the money. So your interesting study of psychology, which always interests me about reality shows. And those are my biggest surprises. Barbie and Squid Game, the challenge. What were your surprise things? Uh, don't have any. Okay. Let's talk about biggest disappointments slash the worst things that we've seen. <laughs> Rebel Moon, part one. Oh, you watched it? Oh, God. I wish that I hadn't. <laughs> and the reviews were bad. I should have believed them and not watched it. But I just thought, I'm a sucker for sci-fi. It was more morbid interest to see what is this film that Zack Snyder's come up with that was pitched as a Star Wars. That was, you couldn't possibly do that any louder. (laughs) It was pitched as a Star Wars film and now here it is on Netflix and it's awful. It's not worth watching, even for the action. My expectations were not low enough and my other biggest disappointment was the entire superhero genre it's fallen apart, and this is the end. The Marvels was terrible. It was embarrassing how bad it was. And it's disappointing that all these studios had to do was stick to the formula that was very clearly established in the 2010s. They don't wash anymore. And they've just wrecked it. It's, it's, it's dead. We did call it, though. We did call it. We declared superhero fatigue in 2002, year review. My biggest... Epo- my biggest disappointment was Scream 6. Oh. I don't even know if it's 6. It is 6, yes. Reiterating what I probably said was Scream 5. This just didn't tick the boxes. Like, everyone fucking loved, sorry, Scream 5. They did. It was treading old ground in a modern way. Scream 6. Now... No, no. I just, I'm done. I'm done with Scream. I'm not interested. I'm checked out. I don't give a f*** (laughs) anymore. (laughs) I'm just saying it as it is. Well, I think you know, but you know that the the Melissa Barrera is another one, like Jessica Hennick, who should be more famous than she is. Yeah, and what's happened to her? She's Do gone. You know? she, yeah, no, but I don't want to get into the. Don't want to get into. Uh, not getting into it. No, we'll get. We'll get into no, it. she was fired. I don't want to get into it. I don't want to get no, into it. No, we're not getting to the politics of it, but it's it's relevant. She was fired from the project, and then yeah. Jenna Ortega left. For possibly it was connected. Possibly it was scheduling. So she's gone, but also the the director's gone as well now, hasn't he? Yeah. 
So now so, it's just they've got Scream Seven with what the supporting characters with with no one with no director no Plus, story. A Neve Campbell who's not to be acknowledged for what she's worth. She wasn't in it. To yeah, the franchise. Enough, yeah, we're not going to pay that. Nah, who's left? Who is left? It's bullshit. Sorry, sorry about my language. I don't care. I liked Melissa Barrera being in the Scream costume at the end. She wasn't the killer. Don't but even remember it. That was a that was a fun thing to do to have one of the girls in the it's costume. Bullshit. Well, terrible. that was fun. I enjoyed it. It's I enjoyed terrible. it. Terrible. Any other disappointments? You. Okay. Is that it? What a year it's been for content. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Giving up. Giving up. <laughs>